Over the past couple of episodes, we've been examining the relationship between public media and social media. We've examined how the rise and power of social networks has brought a myriad of problems for the news industry and for society at large. Rampant mis- and disinformation, user data security, a certain level of surrendering of control. We've questioned whether public media should actually leave social media and look to establish their own digital platforms. In this episode, the final episode of this mini-series, we're asking, how can we regulate social media? How can we ensure a more balanced media ecosystem, where media organisations are financially viable, publicly visible and accessible, and where fake news is debunked and dismissed? It feels like we're in a period of massive change and disruption in the market, when the need to do something is becoming more and more urgent. There's very little to lose because the media is really struggling to figure out what sustainability looks like in the digital age. So from news media bargaining codes to the European Media Freedom Act, what forms of regulation are on the table? The mechanisms for funding news have been challenged by a range of factors in the online environment. Until a better model for funding commercial news comes along, almost anything that allows greater funding to flow to public interest journalism has to be seen as a success. And is there an opportunity to think broader and bigger for a better future? To actually consider how we think about public service broadcasting and apply that to the internet? I still think that we are a long way away from the types of interventions that characterise public service broadcasting. I'm Harry Locken from the Public Media Alliance. This is Media Uncovered. We're going to begin this episode by looking at one specific form of regulation. It's called the Online News Act, or Bill C-18, and it was passed by Canadian legislators just a few months ago. But the regulation and the reaction by the tech platforms to it has been causing headline news both in Canada and around the world. To give you the rundown in 60 seconds, here's PMA's advocacy coordinator, Desalon Daniels. Bill C-18, the Online News Act, compels Google and Meta to strike up content deals between them and the news providers. In Canada, Google and Meta consume 80% of all advertising revenue, so Bill C-18 is designed to redistribute some of that wealth into the hands of the news organizations themselves. The legislation was passed in June and will come into effect by December latest. But since June, rather than striking up deals with the news organizations, Meta has instead decided to block new services for users completely on their platforms. It means many Canadians are no longer able to access news stories on either Facebook or Instagram. And this is for any news organization, national and international. Subsequently, News Media Canada the Canadian Association of Broadcasters and CBC Radio Canada have applied to the Competition Bureau to investigate what they describe as Meta's abuse of its dominant position. A decision from the Bureau is still pending. And in another minute, here's what the reaction has been to the news block. There's criticism over what it will do to the information sphere, that Meta's platforms are now absent of any legitimate and verified news sources to rebuff myths and disinformation. Criticism over access to news, that for many, social media is the way they access and consume news and information. Criticism over the financial impact, with traffic from Meta's social networks now halted. How might that impact revenue streams? And most recently, criticism over safety. Canada is experiencing its worst wildfire season, as social media is a quick and easy way to disseminate life-saving information to those affected. 
but not anymore if you're a news organization trying to do that via Facebook and Instagram. One news editor of a local radio station has described the news ban as stupid and dangerous, while CBC Radio Canada's president and CEO, Catherine Tate, has written to Meta urging them to restore news access for communities and indigenous peoples affected by the wildfires. Instead of Meta's reaction to it, I want to focus on the type of regulation. Canada's Online News Act was based off a piece of legislation first introduced in Australia in 2021 called the News Media Bargaining Code. Here's David Sutton, senior strategist for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, to describe how the News Media Bargaining Code came about. It was designed to empower the regulator to intervene in negotiations over payments for news content between media organisations and what they described as designated services, which is essentially Google and Facebook. And that was then legislated in the form of an act in, or a bill in 2021, and uh, came into effect in, in March 2021. And essentially, at the heart of the code is the idea of what I described as designated services. In essence, for a code to have an effect on a digital platform, it has to be designated by minister, by the minister, I should say. And designated services have to A, have significant market power, and B, and I think this is one of the amendments that came during the, the legislative process, they have to have made a significant contribution to the sustainability of the Australian news industry through agreements with news organisations. And the code was designed on the basis that to the greatest possible extent, the digital platforms and news organisations would negotiate, they would negotiate in good faith, and ideally, you know, there would be no need for anyone to intervene. But if there's a breakdown, the code allows the parties to request binding arbitration. And that essentially was, if you like, the, the stick in the legislation. That was the thing that the digital platforms least liked. That's the chronological and technical explanation. The simple version then is it's legislation that requires major digital platforms that have been designated by the minister in Australia to have to negotiate content agreements with news organisations. And if those negotiations break down, there is the potential for organisations to take the process to a regulator for binding arbitration and to force a price. Before the legislation was passed, Meta, at the time known as Facebook, did block news for around a week. That was until some key amendments were made. We're now two years on from the inception of the News Media Bargaining Code. So how much can it be considered a success? Courtney C. Raj is a postdoctoral fellow at the UCLA Institute for Technology, Law and Policy and a fellow at the Centre for Democracy and Technology and the Centre for International Governance Innovation. The Australian News Media Bargaining Code has led to a renaissance in Australian journalism, according to a lot of reporting there in my conversations. Hundreds of journalists have been hired most media organizations have made some sort of deal with at least one of the platforms, if not both. And that has included small media, which have banded together and created collective bargaining groups that have also benefited. And the Australians, I think, were really smart to include their public service broadcaster in the deal. So, you know, the jury is still out because it's still fairly new. But initially, first of all, it has not broken the internet, which is what a lot of kind of luminaries and, and digital rights groups warned. But 
you know, the Australian news media bargaining code was not perfect. It raised a lot of concerns about who benefits big media versus small media, incumbents versus upstarts, about whether the deals should be more transparent, about whether there should be requirements that any funds garnered through these licensing deals should be restricted to certain types of costs, such as hiring more journalists versus, for example, returning money to shareholders. So I think the News Media Barding Code in Australia was a great first salvo. We might as well try something. At this point, there's very little to lose because the media is really struggling to figure out what sustainability looks like in the digital age. What about the domestic perception of its success? A year after the regulation was brought in, the government undertook its own review with the aim of trying to ascertain how successful it was. The criterion they used was to ask whether, as a direct result of the code, more successful negotiations had been able to take place between the publishers and the platforms. In other words, did it result in more money flowing to news organisations that could be then invested in public interest journalism? And and the, the conclusion of that review was that Yes, in fact, that was the case. As a result of the code, they were able to negotiate arrangements and some of that value did flow to them and then back into public interest journalism. So seen that way, you've got to think that, yes, that's a success at some level. David also points out that this media bargaining code isn't simply a tool to subsidise commercial news media for lost advertising revenue. If that was the case, what would the justification be for including a public service broadcaster which relies very little on commercial revenue? Instead, the news media bargaining code is about correcting the principle of private tech giants earning revenue off the content and services uploaded onto their platforms from public media funded by taxpayers. If digital platforms were deriving value from the use of ABC News content, and that value was something that this code would allow figures to be put to and an exchange to occur, then both the ABC uh, as the public broadcaster and the Australian people had a legitimate interest in an securing a portion of that value that could then be reinvested into ABC journalism. No one's out here saying the news media bargaining code is a silver bullet, the final piece in the jigsaw which solves the imbalance of power between independent national media organisations and multinational social media firms. It is flawed. It's been criticised for leaving some media groups by the wayside unable to engage with the digital platforms. SBS, the country's second public broadcaster, is a prime example of this. It was excluded from any negotiations with Google or Meta. But even so, the media bargaining code isn't nothing. Until a better model for funding commercial news comes along, almost anything that allows greater funding to flow to public interest journalism has to be seen as a success. So while I don't think anyone loves the code in Australia, I think there is something to be said for the fact that it has allowed more money to flow to public interest journalism. The ABC has committed to investing the revenue that it earns from its content agreements into local journalism. It's employed 60 new journalists alone as a result. Clearly, there is a global perception that Australia's initiative has been successful. Hence, so many countries now looking to follow suit. So Canada is doing the same, the US as well, with the Journalist Conservation and Preservation Act and California's new um, Journalism and Conservation Preservation Act. Brazil is also getting ready to vote on a provision in a larger bill that would do some of the same things Indonesia and South Africa are considering. So we are seeing that this sort of approach 
has triggered a lot of interest around the world because it seems just makes some sort of sense that you need to rebalance the power relationships and address information asymmetries between platforms and the news media. Just for a second, let's home in on Australia and Canada. The critical question here, I think, is why did Meta and Google ultimately go along with Australia's news media bargaining code, but as we heard at the beginning, not Canada's Online News Act? There's a few possible answers. One, that there's such a critical difference between the Online News Act, which the tech platforms simply can't go along with, and to be fair, there are a couple of substantial differences. But are they substantial enough to drive Meta to its news ban? Or is it because of what Canada's legislation represents, that following on from Australia, they now see a wave of similar-styled regulation coming at them? So Meta and Google's response is, take a hardline approach in the hope you deter any other government from going ahead with it. But does this work? In the last two weeks, in full sight of what's going on in Canada, New Zealand's government has now introduced their own bill. Or a final option. Is Australia just a bit lucky? They do describe Australia as the lucky country. But um, I do think going first probably did help a little bit. I do have a feeling that there's a, a sense in which the more that countries do this, the more that Meta and Google will likely harden up their their response. In a sense, did we represent a precedent that they felt the need to fight you know, vehemently and strongly? So I, I was, if anything, a little surprised that they didn't fight harder. I think as everyone accepts, the news media bargaining code alone will not address the existential problems which still impact news organisations as we've been exploring across this series. Instead, the code should be seen as part of a wider set of policy initiatives. The Digital Services Act in the EU may be very helpful by requiring greater transparency. So I think we're seeing a bunch of new initiatives coming up that are at least trying something. They're not going to be perfect and they are not going to solve the issue. I think they're relatively short term versus, you know, a full panacea, but it can't hurt. I would strongly suggest, however, that the news media not put all of their eggs in this single basket, but rather also look at things like the EU Copyright Directive, which has given news organizations the right to license their content to news aggregators rather than letting them just use it for free. And what, again, does that mean in the era of generative AI in these big data sets, um, these foundation models, and uh, in the output that results? So who and what else is out there trying to introduce regulatory mechanisms to pull back the power and market dominance of tech platforms? One big player who's already been alluded to is the EU. So let's explore their approach in some more detail. Yes, my name is Pascal Albrechtskirchinger, which is quite a long name, and I'm heading the ZDF lobby office in Brussels. So dealing with media regulation at large. It's worth first reflecting on the fundamental role of the EU in tech and media regulation and how the challenge facing them has become much, much harder. The big event, the big bang, if you want, was, of course, the opening of distribution markets, the Internet, which to a certain, at a certain point in the early 2000s led to a certain loss of control of European policymaking regarding distribution, because until the early 2000s, you could regulate telecoms, 
media and copyright in a quite coherent way because you controlled the ecosystem, if you want. But once distribution, internet algorithms, all those new realities favored very much global distribution, this, of course, made it all the more necessary to look into the relevance of telco for for media regulation. There's also an added complication in that the EU is a block of nations, of which many of its member states have different ideas about what sort of regulation they would like to see and impose. This inevitably leads to contradictions. But even with these difficulties to navigate, the EU has introduced some rules in the tech space. For example, for video on-demand services, there's a mandatory quota regulation which instructs the platforms to ensure that at least 30% of their content is European-made and prominently displayed. What's really interesting about what the EU does is its influence. Their tech regulation policies have a fundamental global impact. What makes the strength of Europe somehow is the buying power of its consumers. So for the GAFA... GAFA here stands for Google, Apple, Facebook and Amazon. European consumers are a must. So this is why you have, um, despite important differences regarding regulatory approaches, a certain power on the European side. So you have the consumer and the buying power, but you also have the regulatory power because Europe is still able, because of that worth, that importance Europe has for the, especially the US companies, Europe can impose rules because in the telco market, the EU very forcefully applies competition rules in a way you wouldn't apply them in America. So the fact that you impose those rules allows you to create certain standards, which quite often are highly regarded worldwide. It won't be copied per se, but many countries will recognize or do recognize already the the value of the European approach regarding the application of strict competition rules regarding the internet economy. So with the challenges in mind, but also the opportunity for the EU to wield its influence, what is the EU actually proposing? Introducing the European Media Freedom Act, or EMFA. European Media Freedom Act is a response to a certain, it's a bit harsh if I use the word systemic failure, but we have a kind of systemic failure regarding the principle of non-interference, media governance and editorial freedoms. Otherwise, you wouldn't feel the need for such a regulation. So it is responding to a weaker consensus, which you might have European-wide, on what it takes to guarantee media freedom. But it is also, it is further strengthening the a certain European consensus on fundamental rights. It's expected EMFA will go to the European Parliament around springtime next year. So with that deadline, there's still many issues up for discussion, many topics still unsettled. The EMFA tries, of course, to deal with the the complicated issue of audiovisual content being taken off platforms for different reasons. It can be linked to American standards being applied, for example. I take uh, sensitive issues like nudity or 
children um, sex education, for example, where in Denmark you would have very different approaches to America. But the area here is not always clearly defined and there is not we, we, we didn't find so far a consensus on how to deal in a very effective way with our rights, so to say, as, as media organizations regarding responsibility of platforms or the set of rules which would govern our right to respond when it comes to takedowns. And there is a parallel, if you want, with what was going on in the discussion around copyright, the filtering mechanisms, for example. So are the platforms primarily responsible? Should they be made responsible? Which kind of technology should they use in order to identify maybe harmful or illegal content? If you ask me, I mean, my opinion is that that discussion is not over. How to get the balance right hmm? between the responsibilities, between the protection of editorial content, because we don't want, of course, the GAFA to censor our content, which is produced according to highest possible standards and already controlled, if you want. So our dependency, our growing dependency on the platforms for broadcasting, disseminating our content cannot lead to a new level of control or an additional level of control. Up until now, we've been looking at regulations proposed and enacted to see what's being done at present by legislators to rein in social media firms. Their influence on the information ecosystem, their control over accessibility and prominence of both private and public media, and their impact on the funding of public interest journalism. But to conclude this episode, I want to see if actually there's an opportunity for legislators to be a bit more daring. Is there actually an argument to say we need to go much, much further? That all of these individual pieces of legislation are just tinkering around the edges? And actually what's really needed is an entirely new mindset. It's not even necessarily for me about wholesale regulation. I think it's just about trying to think about broader approaches, I suppose, and like different types of organisations, different types of entities. This is Helen Jay. I was head of policy at Channel 4, which is one of the UK's public service broadcasters, and then left a couple of years ago to do a PhD, which is exploring ideas around the public service internet and the extent to which the concept of public service broadcasting might be helpful for when we're thinking about regulating digital platforms. Now, a public service internet, can you maybe just break that down for me to just understand exactly what what that is? Is that a new form of internet or is it just adapting the existing platforms or services that are already out there and just making them more in line with public service principles? Yeah, so great question. And I think, so I use the kind of idea of like public service internet as a sort of a bit of a shorthand for actually what is lots of different ideas and lots of different things. But I think what I'm particularly interested in is trying to detach almost the kind of the vehicle or the means of when we think about public service broadcasting take the kind of broadcasting bit away and that kind of public service ethos and that public service concept, the public service intervention of we've got a set of media organisations that are explicitly designed by policy with obligations to do certain things and they're set up and designed in specific ways to deliver public, social, cultural, democratic purposes. Now, I think my the core of my idea is 
why aren't we thinking about that in relation to the sort of digital sphere particularly I'm interested in kind of digital communications platforms so search and social predominantly as the means of accessing information about the wider world and actually the nature of my PhD research is sort of just trying to explore what are the different ideas that are out there but at the heart of it I think is just accepting that in the broadcasting environment we have lots of different models we have public models commercial models mixes in between and then in our search and our social in the kind of modern platform environment we just have commercial players can i ask you the question which you asked sort of th- throughout that answer which was why don't we think of the internet as this space where public service principles have a have a a role to play I think there's lots of different factors at play, but this question of kind of feasibility, I think is very powerful. Essentially, in broadcasting, you think back to 100 years ago, it was in policymakers' gifts. You know, there's only kind of finite capacity. There's lots of different people who are going to want it. What kind of system do we want? And policymakers had to make that decision. And therefore, they were allowed to think, what do we want this technology to do? Do we want to, how do we want to use it? How can we regulate it? How can we control it? And I think that, conversation it just hasn't been in policymakers gifts right it's much more this is a commercial market that has been developing and regulators have been much more on the back foot in the early stages and now we see I'm trying to catch up and we see lots of initiatives around the world with different jurisdictions thinking about what they want to do and how they want what role they want to play you've maybe indicated a bit of a a step change in terms of actually what was feasible or what what was considered absolutely infeasible. Do you think there's been a bit of a shift in in the way policymakers are now thinking about it? That actually this is something, maybe not something we can uh, regulate or try and control, but something we actually have to. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, I think you know, I remember a television conference that I went to. I would say probably it was about like 2014, 2015, I think, and. A very senior regulator at the time said at that conference said like, well, you can't regulate the Internet. And I think that was just a given. That was just this idea of like the Wild West and it was too vast like that. It now longer feels like the modus of most policymakers. I think that across the world, people accept that there are interventions that they need to do and that you can and should and need to, in fact, regulate the Internet in lots of different ways. I think there's all sorts of different things that provoke that moment. Obviously, kind of Cambridge Analytica, I think these are moments of kind of like 2016, 2017, that kind of like tech clash ever since really, really did raise some doubts of like, hang on a minute we're putting a lot of trust in these platforms and actually I'm not sure that that they that it that it's quite enough just to trust that they're going to do the right thing but I think you you sort of see similar types of approaches happening around the world as people more and more accepting actually look we, we do need to do anything it's not just a viable approach anymore to say oh you can't regulate the internet but having said all that I still think that we are a long way away from the types of interventions that characterise public service broadcasting, you know, the key thing that I'm sort of interested in is the fact that lots of these things, they're quite sort of focusing on minimising negative harms. You know, you see that with the online safety, you see that with competition. They're quite narrow in terms of the regulatory approach. Public service broadcasting, public service media is much broader. It's much more encompassing. It's it's this kind of positive type of intervention about the society we want to create rather than the harms we want to diminish. And it feels like there's quite a difference there. So what is the alternative? It's not necessarily a regulatory approach. And it might not be a new intervention. It might not be a new institution. It might not be a whole suite of regulation. It could be lots of different things. But I think that you know, sort of how you can incentivize non-commercial, not-for-profit um, 
entities, people who are exploring these kind of technologies or, or, or offering these kind of platforms just with a different set of values in mind. I know that there are there are people lobbying in Europe on, on those sorts of things. There are people kind of doing really interesting kind of um, community work, I think. You know, the broadcasters, some of the broadcasters themselves are trying to get together to think about that. But I, you know, the extent to which that is landing or still feels like, oh, that's a bit of a way off. That's quite utopian. That's quite, you know, crazy. We're actually trying to deal with real things here, like, you know, digital competition and and, and AI. And I think that's all great and good, but I just sort of feel a bit like, yeah, sometimes kind of people's kind of parameters still feel quite narrow, I think, in this debate. In this series, we've explored the impact of digital platforms, social media firms, on not just public service media, but on the media and information ecosystem as a whole. We've examined the many significant challenges facing news media as a result of the rise and prolific success of these social media firms. And while it's good to see what form of regulation is currently on the table, from competition measures to bargaining codes, it's also essential to ask whether that's enough. Whether actually we can interpret and reshape the internet so it abides by fundamental public service principles. And that, I think, is an exciting idea. Many thanks to my guests, Pascal Albers-Kersinger, Helen J, Courtney C. Raj, David Sutton, and indeed all the guests who have appeared on the past few episodes. And a special shout out to Desalon Daniels for her excellent reporting on this episode. If you would like to find out any more about these subjects, do head to our website, publicmediaalliance.org, or you can follow us on our social media platforms at Public Media PMA on Twitter and Public Media Alliance on Facebook and LinkedIn. Thanks as always to Lucas Thompson, Rachel Still and Tom Brazier for the music and a special mention to Studio Columna, Micro Sammy and Pixabay for the royalty-free sound effects. In next month's episode, I'll be in Namibia exploring the value of language services. Thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.